So we're chugging along in our AHA series. In fact, we only have uh, just uh, a couple of weeks left, this one and, and next week, and, and then we'll be wrapping up, uh, and, and you heard from Malia in the announcements that we'll be moving on to Jonah and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mission trip. And so that'll be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that series as well. Uh, but as we continue here, we pick up uh, where we left off, and that was with the prodigal. And the prodigal has had um, a couple of things happen uh, that are um, in the realm of aha. Remember, th this whole series, and if you've missed some, I encourage you to catch up online. You can listen to the podcast, watch the video. But this whole series is about what it takes to draw us back home from the distant country. Okay, and so I'm going to read to you a little bit of, of where we've been in Luke 15. If you want to follow along, Luke 15, starting in, uh, in chapter, uh, starting in verse 11, uh, or you can just listen in. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. Uh, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant country, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pots he was feeding the pigs were good to him, but no one gave him anything. And then, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And so that's where we are. That's, that's the part of the parable that we've worked through. And so it starts with the desire from the son to say, Hey, I have been restricted by my father too long. Yes, I know my father is a good father and he has always provided for me and he's given me everything and my whole life is dependent on him. But the son feels like the father has been restricting him. And remember, we talked about that we feel like that too sometimes, don't we? We understand um, that God has put fences up. In his word, he's put fences up, things that we are to follow and things that we are to do. Things that we are to avoid. And we look at that fence sometimes, and we have, we have this understanding sometimes when we look at it, that that fence is meant to keep us and rob us from having joy and fun in our lives. So we look at that fence and we get angry at the rules. We get angry at the law of God, and we, we get mad at the fact that it exists. And the prodigal did too, and so he said, give me my money, I wish you were dead. And the father consented and he left. Of course, one of the things we learned is that the fence is not there to restrict us from joy. The fence is there to help us know the boundaries so that we can have the maximum amount of joy in our lives. But the prodigal doesn't learn that the easy way. He leaves and, and he finds himself in the distant country. And here's what we said. When you travel to the distant country, man, it's fun for a minute. It's enjoyable for a second. I mean, you're, you're not going to convince me that this probably 18-ish year old young man didn't enjoy the wild living I'm sure he enjoyed the wild living. Because something that Satan does as he draws us away is that we engage full, um, fully, we engage wholeheartedly into a life that, that runs contrary to God and it's enjoyable for a second. But eventually we find ourselves in the 
distant country in the big pen. Knowing that it's broken, knowing that it's not right, and desperate. And that's where the prodigal finds himself when aha starts to happen. And we've had a couple of weeks of aha. It started with the phrase that he came to his senses. He has a sudden awakening. The alarm sounded. He answers the alarm. He comes to his senses. The alarm sounded all along the way. God is always trying to get our attention when we step away from him. When we are doing things that are contrary to the will of God, God is always trying to get our attention. Whether it's through the words of trusted friends, whether it's through the, the message in a sermon, whether it's what I see when I open up my Bible, or just a feeling that I have that gnaws at me, God is always trying to get our attention. But it finally happened. He came to his senses when he was so desperate. He was starving to death and he wanted to eat pig slop. He comes to his senses. And he sees something that, that has always been true, but he's just now seeing it. And then... After that, we said, that's, that's good, that's not, that, that's not enough, that's conviction, that comes from God, that it says, this is not okay. But the next step we had to learn, and that was last week, that we have to be brutally honest with ourselves. We have to be brutally honest with ourselves, and we have to come to the realization that, you know what, it is my own fault that I'm here. Yes, other things have happened in my life, yes. Maybe my parents were rough. Yes, maybe the economy took a bad turn. Yes, maybe my wife is not everything I thought she would be or my husband isn't who he was supposed to be. Or who knows what it is. But we get to the point with brutal honesty where we utter the words, I was wrong, I have sinned. And we tell God and we tell somebody. And that's great. But frankly, guys, it's not enough. If that was enough, Jesus would have ended the story there, and the parable would be over, and that would be the end of it. But it's not enough to be suddenly awakened, and it's not enough to be brutally honest about why you are where you are. It's not enough because there's something else that we need. We need to have immediate action. It's the, set, it's the last letter in AHA. We've got an awakening, and we've got honesty, and we need action. We need to move. And, and here's the deal. Conviction, that's God's part. It leads to confession. That's your heart. That's awakening and honesty. But unless we have this last step, we are just on some weird emotional roller coaster that does us no good. And all of this has to lead to action. It's what determines the difference between a sad story and an actual aha moment in your life where God does something. I think we're honest. We've all got sad stories. But we don't all have enough of the God stories where God steps in and does something and we respond and our life drastically changes because of it. That's what causes aha. And so, you should get that, right? There's a famous study, uh, Dr. I, I'm going to say his name wrong, but I think it's Dr. Edward Miller. Yep, Dr. Edward Miller uh, was the CEO of, of the hospital at St. John's University. And he, he did a study, which I'm sure you, you, you've referenced, even though you didn't know you were referencing it or, or you've heard it. Um, and it's, it's the simple fact that uh, what he tells us is that 9 out of 10 people will knowingly, knowing that life, their life is on the line, will knowingly choose death over change. And, and, and the way the study ferrets out is, is uh, it, it was a study of, of people that had coronary bypass surgery. 
And because of the marvels of modern medicine, when they have coronary bypass surgery, they would be able to live if they would change the way they live their life. They would be able to live relatively pain-free and much longer lives because of this marvel of open heart surgery and bypass surgery. And yet at the one year mark, nine out of 10 of those thousands and thousands of people had made the necessary lifestyle changes to make that surgery anything more than a stopgap. Because change is that hard for us. Change can be that difficult for us. Action is hard. This is, in my estimation, this is the hardest part of AHA. But it's the most necessary part of AHA. Because unless you have change, all you do is cause yourself depression, shame, and guilt. And here's why. When you know in your heart that something is wrong, right? You've had your sudden awakening and you've been brutally honest. And the brutal honesty is, I am wrong, I have sinned. And when you know in your heart that you've sinned, but then you keep living a life that doesn't acknowledge that, it causes all kinds of stress and shame and guilt. And you're exhausted and you're burned out. And you know what happens? You're miserable. And I think if we're honest, we've probably been there at times in our life. And if we're honest, we probably know people that are stuck there right now. But we're called for something better. We're called for something more. So we're going to break into the text here, and we're going to go straight from uh, we're going to go straight from this this idea that uh, he was going to go home to his father, and he was going to say, "Hey, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Hire me on as a servant." Okay, and so he's been brutally honest about where he is and whose fault it is and what he deserves, and then he moves on to this next step: immediate action. Here's what he says. That's the one. So he got up and he went to his father. See, what? Well, here's what happens. He got up. It's the fact that we need to do something immediate. As soon as he has a sudden awakening. And then he moves from that and he is brutally honest with himself about why he is where he is. He has a choice now. The choice is wallow or the choice is act. And he acts. He gets up and he goes. And, and, and the thing about this is that uh, when we say that he gets up, um, it has this, this, in the original language, the audience would have known very clearly what Jesus was talking about. It's not a matter if he stumbles up. It's not a matter if he slowly gets to his knees and then pushes himself up. It's actually the word that Jesus uses um, here is the same word that we use for resurrection. So it has a lot more to do with than just standing to his feet. The word that Jesus uses here is this idea that he wakes up and he stands up with purpose to make his life new and different than it was before. He's not just standing up because he's not, you know, it's like, okay, well, I, 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 you know, one thing at a time, right? So we've talked about my alarm clock before throughout the series. You guys know more about my getting up habits than you should. Um, <laughs> but sometimes... When I'm laying there and I don't want to get up, I'm like, all right, first step, I'm just going to get the covers off of me because I think I'll gradually get cold and that will force me to get up. And then I'm like, all right, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put one leg over the bed and then, then maybe I'll, I'll start to 
get the other leg over it. And it's this gradual thing. But this is not a gradual thing. This is get up. He gets up with purpose and passion because it's the word we use for resurrection. His life is about to take on a whole new meaning and he knows it. And so this is more than getting out of the pig pen. This is about fixing the mess in his life. He's not looking to change this one circumstance. He's looking to do something drastic. And the drastic thing that he's looking to do is to go home. See, when you wake up and you're brutally honest and you're ready to act, you have to get up and act, but you have to do it with purpose. You have to know where you're going. Listen to me. I have sat in my office, both, both as a counselor and as a pastor, with a lot of people and a lot of times, and, and they're all intense and they want to move and they want to do things differently, but they have no idea where they're going, and so guess what? They end up coming right back, like they forgot to get off the roundabout, and they're right back where they were here. European vacation. <laughs> right? Look, kids, Parliament. Big Ben. And then, like two minutes later, look, kids, Parliament. Big Ben. <laughs> Because they keep going in a circle. Whatever. Um, honestly, I can't remember if that's a movie I should recommend you or not. So, watch with caution. Or YouTube that scene. But the idea here is, the idea here is that if you don't stand up and you don't go with purpose, then you're not going to get anywhere better than you are now. In fact, you're probably going to wander even further away from the distant country because you're just wandering. But the son, the prodigal, he gets up and he goes to his father. He knows exactly where he's going. And listen to me, if you are here in church today, if you are sitting in a church today, then there is no question about you knowing where you need to go. There's a reason that you're here. And if you are wandering, if you're away from the distant country and you need to act, you know where you need to go. You need to go home. You need to go back to the Father's house. You and Jesus need to have a conversation. You and the God of the universe need to get right. That's where he needs to go, and, and, and that's, that's where he goes. He gets up, and he goes to his Father's house. And, and here's the thing. I don't think he knew what was going to happen. I mean, I don't think he knew how long it was going to take him to get there. I don't think he knew um, what he was going to eat or drink along the way. I doubt he had a plan for where he was going to sleep. I don't think he had a clue about whether or not his brother would ever forgive him or if his father would take him in. I don't think he had any idea what it was going to be like. None at all. He just knew that where he was wasn't where he should be. And so he decides to go. So he gets up, and he goes to the Father's house. And guys, getting up changes everything. If there's something that you need to understand, if there's something that you need to grab hold of throughout this entire series, it's that getting up changes everything. If you don't, you wallow. But if you get up, it, it can change a lot of things in your life. Okay? And... I, this is the hardest thing. The reason we linger here for a little bit is because this is the hardest thing to do, is the actual getting up and moving. The action is so hard, and here's why. Because we are in a culture that um, is easily misled. And so we get stuck between honesty and action, and the reason we get stuck between honesty and action is because we convince ourselves that feeling different is the same as doing different.
That's why you all make New Year's resolutions. Raise your hand if you've made New Year's resolutions. Sure, I do it all the time. I make New Year's resolutions in March. Because it's a new year for me, because my first two months didn't count. So I make more resolutions. I make mid-year resolutions. July 1st, because then you get to April and you're like, well, I kind of I kind of blew it. I'm like, alright, so I'm going to wait till July, and then, and then it's going to happen. Why we do it, right? Because we like we like the idea and the feeling of getting up. We like the feeling of action, but we don't actually move. But we're convinced because we feel differently, because we have conviction in our hearts that that's just as good as actually doing different. Here's the thing. It's not. That doesn't take a, a, a genius. That, that's not rocket science. It's just, it goes contrary to what Satan wants to do in your heart that says just because you feel fired up about something, just because you feel intense about something, because you have this strong conviction in your heart that that's as good as, that that means there's movement in your life. It doesn't mean there's movement in your life. It doesn't. So you can't mistake conviction for real change. Like, and, and we do that a lot. And when you do, it leads to a couple of problems. There's three really common ones here. Oh, man. There it is. When, when you ignore the conviction in your life, and you ignore what your heart knows to be true, you've had this sudden awakening and you've been brutally honest, which means your heart knows something. But you refuse to act on it. There's a couple of problems. One is... There's this underlying sense of fatigue and frustration. And it's, it's called dissonance, if you want the fancy term for it. But basically it means this. Your life and your heart don't match. And when your life and your heart don't match, that is exhausting. And it is frustrating. And eventually something breaks. Because listen to me. You can only fake it for so long. Some of you have been faking it for a really long time. And there are points in my life when, if I'm honest, I have been faking it for a really long time. But when your heart knows something and your actions won't match it, you get tired and you get frustrated. And unfortunately, it continues. When you get tired and you get frustrated, um, then all of a sudden there is real tension in your significant relationships. And that makes sense, right? Because the frustration that I feel and the exhaustion I feel with myself, I'm only going to be able to keep it there for so long. Pretty soon it's going to spill over. And who does it spill over to? The people that are closest to me. The people that I love the most. The people that I'm around the most. And so what happens is, is I, I get tired and I get frustrated and I get exhausted because my heart and my life don't match up. And all of a sudden then I start to have tension in my significant relationships. And usually it comes out this, usually, usually it comes out with a critical spirit. And I, I don't know, this is as I as I prepare for this week, I have to really be careful here because I can, if I'm not careful, I can have a terribly critical spirit. And so as I was studying for this, I had to ask myself, like, where, where is there something where your heart and your actions aren't lining up? Because I can be critical. And you know what a critical spirit is like, right? Like when we nitpick about everything and, and nothing is ever good enough and everything is, is wrong and, and that's a dangerous place to be. It also comes out in being defensive. When you get really defensive, 
you get really defensive over things that you shouldn't be defensive about, that's a good indicator that there is um, there is this ignoring of what your heart knows and what your actions say. When you're really defensive, you, you, you get easily, um, you get your feelings hurt and you get offended. You say things a lot like, what do you mean by that? Or how dare you? And then the last thing is that, that happens frequently when your heart and your actions don't line up is you get angry. You just get angry. And the reason you get angry is because it's shameful for yourself when you aren't who you want to be. It's shameful for yourself. And, and well, that shame and guilt is eventually going to spill out. And, and anger is a secondary emotion. You guys know this, I'm sure. But anger is a secondary emotion. But it happens when the other things are so intense and strong that I don't know how to deal. Listen, if you find yourself and, and some of those relate to you, you're like, man, I do have fatigue and frustration in my spiritual life. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Or you're like, man, I, I, I do have this tension. I can't really put my finger on why, but it's just there in my relationships. There's this tension. And, and I do seem to be angry a lot. It doesn't, no matter how hard I try to say to myself, I don't want to be angry, it just kind of happens. I'm going to suggest to you that, that there might be a disconnect, dissonance between what your heart knows is true and the way that you're living your life. Because it's one thing when we wake up in a pig pen and we want to eat pig slop. But most of us aren't there. <coughs> most of us aren't. We haven't taken our entire life and gone to live in a distant country. But what we've done is we've taken part of our life and we've put up, remember that electric fence, and we said, God, you can have all this, but you stay away from this area here. And in this area here, I go where I want to go. I do what I want to do. I live how I want to live. But my heart knows better. And I've had the awakening, and I've been honest that it's not what God wants me to do, but I keep doing it. And it's a problem. It doesn't work. And so um, there's a real difference between conviction and belief. So here's the deal. Don't, don't tell me about your convictions. Show me. Right? Don't, don't tell me that you believe that spiritually influencing your children is right. Mad hands, you don't tell me that. But instead, go into their beds and kneel down and pray for them. Lead them. Don't tell me that you want your marriage to survive. But do the hard work that it takes to make your marriage survive. Get up off the couch. Take your wife on a date. No, don't tell me. Show me. This is the reality of this, is that your convictions aren't really worth much if your belief and your action and your attitude don't fall. Okay? Your convictions don't matter to anybody. I'm going to be really honest with you here. This is, this is time to, to look in the mirror. Your convictions don't matter to God. If you're not willing to act. Okay? Like, I really... I, I'm convicted about the state of children across our our world. They're hurting and they're poor and they're starving and it's terrible. Well, you know what? Cancel your cable and adopt one. I meant World Vision. You could adopt one for real, but you'll have to do more than cancel your cable to that. <laughs> like, like, I mean, that's you're, you're going to have to figure out something stronger than canceling your cable. But you know what? You could cancel your cable and probably through World Vision or Compassion or what's our team in Haiti, uh, uh, Worldwide Village, you could adopt probably two or three children a month for the price that you're paying for your cable. 
Don't tell me that that matters to you. Show that it matters to you. All right. So there's a couple things that it takes. If you are going to act, and the prodigal gets this, and, he, and, he, and we can find it in the text. If you are going to act, um, it takes a couple of things that you have to do intentionally, and you have to be willing to risk. And here's what it is. Uh, it starts with, with verse 20. Uh, here's the rest of it. We started with he got up and he went to his father. He got up and he went to his father, but when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And so one of the things that we realize here, one of the things that we have to come to understand is that if you are going to act, you are going to have to risk. Because he is getting up. He basically said to his father, I wish that you were dead. And he went and he blew his money on ridiculous, sinful living. And now he's broke and he, and he knows he was wrong and he's been honest with himself and he gets up to go home. To do that, he's going to have to risk. He's going to have to go back to his father. And he's going to have to say, Father, forgive me. And we have no idea how that's going to play out for him. Actually, we do because it's in the story. But he has no idea how that's going to play out for him. Listen to me. If you are going to move, if you are going to try to get to a place where your heart, what you know is true in your heart, and the way that you're living your life are going to match up, you are going to have to risk. You are going to have to risk that honoring God is better than wallowing where you're at. And it is going to be difficult and painful and tricky. You are going to have to get to a point where you risk Everything without knowing exactly how it's going to be. You know, it, it, it might be you saying to yourself, you know what, I don't know if I'm going to fit in a church. But I know I need to be here. So I'll go. You might get to the point where you say, I don't know if my friends will stick by me. If they'll still hang out with me, but I know I can't go out partying all the time. It might mean saying, I don't know if my boyfriend will leave me. But I know that I can't be sexual before we're married. I don't know what her response will be. But I know the Bible says that I have to be honest. I don't know... I don't know if I can really forgive the way that God wants me to forgive. But I know that I'm called to forgive just like Jesus forgave me. See, when you're in a distant country and you, you want to come home, you want to act, right? You've had your sudden awakening and, and, and you have been honest with where you're at and what you need to do. You have to ask but, to act, but acting takes risk. It absolutely takes risk. And you know what it takes? It takes honoring God more than you honor yourself. See, here's, here's the thing. is Satan is going to want you here as much as possible um, to be passive. Satan is going to want you to be passive. You know why? Because Satan would always encourage you to choose easy rather than hard. And following God, in case you didn't know, is hard. This is my problem with some of the gospel that we preach in this country. We, we try to paint the picture that following God should be easy and simple, and it's always going to be easy and simple. And it doesn't really cost you anything, and it doesn't really take anything from you. But listen to me, following God is hard. Some of you, 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 you've got to wrap your heads around the fact that following God is hard. And it costs. Jesus says you've got to be willing to give up your whole life to follow me. 
got to be willing to die daily to follow me. But we reject that because Satan pushes on us that it should be easy. And so he tells us, like, don't do that. But, but again, it's all about what we honor. Do we trust God? So something, you've got to gut check this for a second. Do you trust God? Because look, if you're going to get up and move, it's going to be because you trust God. The son gets up and he starts without any idea of what's going to happen. He starts walking to the father's house. He doesn't know, but there's something in him that trusts the father. There's something in him that trusts the father. You've got to be the look. If you don't know or don't believe that God truly has something better for your life, then why would you go? So listen to me. If you're not sure... Scripture is full of truth about how much God desires fullness. And it's better. But you've got to try. You've got to risk. You've got to honor Him. You've got to move. All right? There's more. Uh, let's finish up the text. Luke 15, 22 to 24. Actually, it says, uh, I, I skipped 21 up there just because it, it didn't fit. And, uh, what happens is in, in uh, 20, it says that while he was a long way off, the father saw him and the father ran to him and embraced him. And then verse 21 says this, says that the son starts his prepared speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. But the father interrupts him in verse 22. He doesn't even get to the point where he says, hey, could I just be a servant that lives in your house like all the other servants? He doesn't get that far. Instead, he gets to this point where he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've, and I've sinned against you. And the father interrupts, starting in 22, and he says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fat calf and kill it. Let's have a feet. What did calf do, right? Right? Come on. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, right? Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. And the thing that you have to understand here is that in this instance, uh, what's happening is the father is demonstrating full forgiveness and full restoration to the son. First of all, for the father to run was ridiculous. It was undignified culturally. It would not have happened. It certainly wouldn't have happened for someone who had spurned him and scorned him and, and, and wished him to be dead. But the father is actually waiting and looking. You get the sense in, in, in verse 20 that, that the father, while the son was still a long way off, the father sees him. And the father runs to him. And the father embraces him. And then he says, you know what? Put this robe of honor on him and put the rings on his finger and the sandals on his feet. Let's celebrate his homecoming because here's the deal. What was lost is now found. The father is offering the son full restoration. He is inviting him back completely into the family here. There is no, there is no clause there is no condition. There are no steps of reconciliation and repentance to be gone through. The father, to his own dishonor, the dishonor that other people would have put on him, to his own dishonor, forgives freely and welcomes the son back home. This is a big deal. 
See, this is the big deal because what Satan was going to happen is Satan is going to tell you is that it's too late. You've had the abortion, right? You cheated on your spouse. You filed for the divorce. You got drunk again. You neglected your family. They kicked you out. Whatever it is, Satan is going to tell you that it's absolutely too late. That there is no hope for you. That there is no forgiveness for you. That it's, it's too late. It's gone. But here's what I need you to know. Jesus tells the parable so that you won't have to wonder what the Father's response will be. The whole purpose of this, remember we started in 11, we talked about this way back in week 1. We started in verse 11 with, to illustrate the point further. And the point was how God is recklessly longing and running and risking for his people. He sacrifices himself for his people because he wants everyone to come to know him and he wants everyone to follow him and he wants to forgive and gather us together. That that is all he is about, is bringing us together. His holiness requires payment for sin. He was even willing to pay it on the cross. And his desire is to bring us all together. And then to illustrate that point, he tells this story. right? So the son may not have known what the father's response will be. But the whole reason he tells the parable is so that we will know what the father's response will be. And the father is not mad at you. God is, listen to me, I don't care where you are. I don't care how far away the distant country is that you are wallowing in. I don't care how deep the pig pen is. I don't care if you've eaten a pig slop. God is not mad at you. God is not angry at you. He is not looking to get you. He is not looking to heap punishment on you. He is not putting any conditions on your homecoming. He is waiting on the porch. And he is watching for you. On the off chance that today is the day, He's watching for you. And as soon as he sees you, he runs with arms open wide and he breaks, he breaks down, he envelops, he celebrates. That's how God is waiting for you. If you're in a distant country today, Satan will tell you it's too late and there's no hope for you. But oh my goodness, Satan's a liar. There is hope for you. And it's the hope that we find through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate communion. And that's what we're going to do next. Okay. So just understand this. I'm going to leave this on the screen. You can reflect on it. You can think about it. But no matter how far off in the distant country you are. God sits on the porch. stares in the distance. And he waits. He doesn't get up, give up. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't go inside. He waits. And when you move beyond your sudden awakening, and you can be brutally honest with yourself, and you get up, and you run home, he runs to meet you. We say this all the time. The Christian life is not an easy life to live, but it is a simple life to understand. And you got to home. So we're going to go into communion today. And as we go to communion, what we're going to be celebrating is this truth. That God is waiting to call us home. That through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, who lived a perfect life, the Son of God lived a perfect life, but he laid his life down and was sacrificed on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sin. And through the resurrection, 
He conquered death so that you and I, when we trust Him, and when we ask Him to pay the penalty for our sinfulness, and we trust Him, and we live a life that tries to follow Him, that we are entered into this new relationship, that we become, the word is Christians, followers of Christ. Will we be perfect? Absolutely not. You will find yourself in a distant country. You might be there now. But every time God is sounding the alarm because He wants you to come home. And He is not mad at you. He is longing for you to come home. You'll notice what the Father doesn't do. The Father doesn't ask a lot of questions about where you've been. The Father doesn't ask a lot of questions about how you spent my money. The Father doesn't ask a lot of questions about what was the worst thing you did when you were gone. He says, bring, bring the best robe we've got. And put the family ring on his finger. And put new sandals on his feet. And let's kill the cow and let's celebrate. So I'm going to ask you, as we go to communion today, ask the elders to come forward and prepare. As we go to communion today, I just simply want you to reflect on this. Are you ready to come home? And for some of you, it might be the first time ever that you are coming home. You are not a Christian, and you have never pretended to be a Christian, but now you understand that God is waiting for you, and He's longing for you, and you want to just come home. And if that's you today, then, then all you have to do is decide in your heart, I am a sinner, Jesus died for my sin, and I am going to follow Him. But maybe, for a lot of you that have grown up in the church, or you've been in the church for a long time, you just need to come home again. Maybe for the thousandth time, you just need to come home.